Welcome to the Millerville Community Church podcast of our Sunday morning sermon series, where the Word of God is always the focus of our hearts and prayers. MCC is a non-denominational country-style church, just a short 20-minute drive from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Although we're often considered a cowboy church, we're actually a community of diverse people from many different backgrounds who have a common commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God. This live recording is made possible by the generous donation and support of our subscribers. If you would like to join the growing community of seekers and believers who support MCC podcasts, just go to our website, www.millervillechurch.org, and you can make your online donation anytime. And now, here is the message from Sunday morning at MCC. Good morning. So my name is Beth, and we're going through a series, Pastor John and I, in the Word of God this summer. And so uh, we, I also am teaching a Bible study on Wednesday nights. If you'd like to come, they're all standalone Bible studies. And uh, this coming week, we're going to be talking about the problem of pain. So we're going to be looking at pain and suffering, something that affects all of us at some point for sure. So, and something that's difficult for us to um, really have a good answer for. I'm not sure there is a good answer for it, but we're going to look at it. So, but this morning we're looking at the life of Ezra and the impact of the Word of God on this man. So, uh, let's just open with a word of prayer. Lord, we come to your word um, in humility and acknowledgement that this is your word, and without you revealing to us your word, we would have no understanding of it. And so we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would be guiding and teaching us, and that you also will be convicting us in making application in our own lives. We pray that your word would do its transforming power in our lives, that we might be more and more shaped into your image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, a little bit of background, right back to Abraham. I'm just, I'm going to do the whole Bible in like one minute. (laughs) So, Abraham was given promises by God, so like 4,000 years ago. And Abraham was told by God, he was brought out of the land of Ur, which is near Babylon, which is very interesting because we're going to be talking about Babylon in the book of Ezra. And uh, he was brought out of Babylon, out of Ur of the Chaldeans, which are Babylonians, and he was brought to a land where God would show him. He didn't know where he was going, and when he got there, which of course now is modern-day Israel, when he got there... The Lord said to him that he promised him this land. And though Abraham never owned all that land, God promised it to him and to his descendants. And he also promised him that he would make of Abraham a great nation and that all the families of the world would be blessed through Abraham's family. And so, um, and then he also promised him the seed who we, um, Abraham understood, and we, as the Bible revealed it, learned that that was Jesus Christ would come from the line of Abraham. 
And so Abraham was made all these promises to by God, and God himself made the covenant. So it's not the old covenant. It was what we call the Abrahamic covenant, where God himself would keep this promise no matter what happened to Abraham. God would keep that promise throughout the generations, many generations that followed Abraham. God was still keeping his promises to Abraham, which I think is amazing. You know, God does not see us like we see ourselves with, you know, this short lifespan. God sees the big picture and that he created us with eternity in our hearts. And so we are eternal beings and God has the big picture of our lives in his mind when he makes these promises. So he made these promises to Abraham. And uh, fast forward quite a few years, 400 years later, um, they're now slaves in Egypt and we're wondering, well, whatever happened to the promise of to Abraham, they're all slaves in Egypt, this big family now, family now that has grown to over a million people over these years. And God raises up Moses, and we know the story because of the movies that are out on it, <laughs> of the Exodus. And so Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, across the Red Sea, which became forever something that was firmly planted in their minds of the greatness of God, that he would take them through the Red Sea on dry land and over into eventually the promised land. There's lots of stuff that went with that. We're not looking at that today. So they were brought into the promised land. And one of the things that God gave to them was the law. So God took this huge family group now and he turned them into a nation. And with a nation, you need laws and you need um, civil behavior and you need to know, you know how you're going to do um, worship because it's a theocracy. God was the, their king and um, the setting up of the priesthood. So all these things had to be given to them. And that's what was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. So not just the Ten Commandments, but the entire law was given to Moses there. And he wrote it down for the people. And so then they went into um, the Promised Land, but of course we know that it didn't go very well in the Promised Land because they got caught up in the idolatry of the people groups that lived there. So the Ammonites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and all those ites that lived in the land became a snare to them. They didn't do what God told them to do. They didn't drive them out. And so consequently, they eventually kind of succumbed to their idolatry. This is always, always the danger for God's people, that we succumb to the idolatry of the culture around us because we don't like being different. And they didn't like being different. And so they gave in to idolatry and they would not repent and God sent prophet after prophet to them to call them to repentance. They might for a little bit if they had a good king, which they didn't have very many of, but essentially they never ever left their idolatry. And so God said that I will spew you out of the land, which he did. And so they were taken off into captivity you know, quite a few hundred years later, into Babylon. And God raised up um, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and here the very place that Abraham had left to come to the promised land, they were taken back there as captives to the Babylonian empire. And so um, that's where our story opens, is 
that captivity and um, God promised them though some amazing things and one of the things he promised them as they went into captivity even before they went into captivity so a hundred years before they went into captivity God made this promise to um, through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah um, 44 um, verse 28 and I'm just going to that's the timeline where we are. And uh, you can see, can you see that at all? Okay, well, it's extremely interesting. <laughs> it's too bad you can't see it. But you can buy the timeline out in our bookstore. Um, so we're in the days after the captivity. That's what that's showing you is the, t the days of uh, the exile, which is the, the captivity in Babylon, and the restoration of Jerusalem, which is what we're looking at today in the days of Ezra. But long before this happened, 100 years before the captivity, and the captivity lasted 70 years, so now we're at the end of the captivity, and so it was 175 years before it happened, Isaiah was given this prophecy. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Because the Babylonians had completely leveled Jerusalem, including the temple. The wall, everything was leveled. And so God promises here, I will raise up Cyrus. Well, who's Cyrus? And um, God says, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. You know, the, the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. It's like channels of water, and he directs it wherever he wishes. And so um, even Cyrus, this ungodly king of Persia, is going to be used of God. And he, God promises that their walls will be rebuilt and their temple will be rebuilt. And so... Um, we see, is that going to happen? And if you turn to Ezra now, we're going to um, just land in Ezra for a while. So that's after all of the, it's one of the, towards the end of the history books, so after Chronicles. And Ezra, um, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this is 539 B.C., 175 years later after that prophecy. Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. So I read Isaiah's prophecy, but Jeremiah also prophesied that they would be returned to the land after 70 years. And exactly 70 years later, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And if you have a... An, a scope of idea of how big that is. It's like a huge area. The Persian Empire was vast. It was the major world empire at the time. And he sent it throughout all of his kingdom, like well beyond the what we think of as Persia or Iran today. He sent it well beyond there throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying thus says Cyrus king of Persia the Lord the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth which really was true in his day and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem which is in Judah and that house of course is the temple of God and so God had raised up Ezra to do this 
um, these many years later. And, and the first part of Ezra, the first six chapters, are all about Zerubbabel being sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Now, it took him 20 years to do it because he got waylaid for a period of time, and we've talked about Zerubbabel before. But um, the Lord, through Cyrus, sent Zerubbabel back there. And so uh, we're 20 years later, and, um, you know, the temple's finally finished. But the problem is, even though they had, you know, a wonderful time of rejoicing right then, they didn't maintain it. And the people kind of slipped into complacency, and they got busy building their own homes and um, not really caring for the temple of God, not really caring for the worship of God. They got busy with their own lives. Now, do you think that that's an issue for the church today? What do you hear from one another the most? I'm so busy. And we neglect the things of God, which are of most import. And so this for us is a call back to the word of God, to the worship of God, to putting him number one in our lives in spite of the culture that presses in on us to be so busy that we don't even have time to think. So um, this is what was happening in their day. And a number of years later, 60 years later, we're going to flip over to Ezra chapter 7. So the first six chapters really don't contain anything about Ezra the person, but Ezra is a scribe, and he's written it all down, which is why the book is named after Ezra. And so, but now in chapter 7, we actually have Ezra introduced to us as a, as a key figure in the scriptures. And I'm just going to read um, verses 1 to 10. Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, so this is several kings later after Cyrus, there went up Ezra, son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalem, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Azi, son of Buki, that's a great name, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, we know that name, son of Eliezer, know that name, son of Aaron, the chief priest. And you say, why in the world do we have to have this lineage in here? Well, we'll get to that. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested, because the hand of the Lord, his God, was upon him. And some of the sons of Israel, and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants, went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So that's really an overview of the rest of the book of Ezra. And we're going to come back and look at some of the detail. So just going back and um, looking at the lineage, there's several reasons why there's so many lineages recorded in Scripture. 
It's, it's not just one reason, and it's certainly not boring the more you study the word, because you see who these people are. It's not always the only time that they're mentioned. Some of them, that's the only time they're mentioned. And I think one of God's purposes in that is to show us, you know, this one particular character that we never hear about him in any other scripture, because every single person, every person in this room, every person that's ever lived, is important to God. He cares about you, and he cares about the individuals that are in these lineages. And so we see, just from writing the lineages, that he actually keeps track of all his people. He knows each one of you by name. And he has inscribed you in the palm of his hand if you are a believer. Each one of us he has made, and he's called us into covenant, which is what that inscribing on the palm of his hand is. It's being in covenant with God. And so, um, but there are some interesting people here. Ezra, the son of Sariah. So Sariah um, was one of the ones that returned to uh, Jerusalem under Zerubbabel. So went back to help rebuild the temple. And we're going to see something that's very interesting about each one of these characters that are listed here. Um, Sariah was the son of Azariah, and he was the son of Hilkiah. Hilkiah, if you'll remember when we talked about King Josiah, he was the one who was the high priest in the days of King Josiah. And he's the one, when they went to clean out the temple, he found the word of God and took it to Shalem, if you remember that. And so Hilkiah is one of his, you know, great, great grandfathers son of Shalem, and so on. Um, Zadok was appointed um, also to um, in the key role of a high priest. And if you go all the way down to verse 5, Phineas is the Phineas of the scripture that had the great zeal for the Lord in Moses' day when the people sinned and they, um, like they'd just gone through the apostasy. They'd just kind of returned to the Lord, and they went into um, these areas where the Moabites, etc., lived, and the men started to take up with these Moabite women, which isn't just like, you know, a relationship with them, but it's adopting their idols. And Moab, if you remember, has the uh, wicked god Chemosh, where they did child sacrifices to. And so uh, Phineas um, was the one who the zeal of the Lord overcame him when Moses said, what are you doing? Phineas said, <laughs> and he drew his sword and um, he, he was the one who killed the really, really, um, the couple that started it all and the plague was stopped. And Ezra is the descendant of Phineas and also of Eliezer. So um, remember Aaron had four sons. Two of them died because they presented strange fire before the Lord and were killed instantly in front of the altar. And the other two uh, were left, Eliezer and Abiathar. And Eliezer is the, is the key one who became the high priest after Aaron. And then also, of course, the son of Aaron. So the reason for this is telling us Ezra actually probably if they had a temple, if they were in Jerusalem, if the captivity had never happened, Ezra would likely have been the high priest because of his lineage, because it had to be, you had to be from the line of Aaron. You had to be a Levite. You know, Aaron was in the tribe of Levi. So um, probably Ezra would have been the high priest. But there is no temple in, you know, all those days in Babylon. The temple had been destroyed, and though it's rebuilt, that chief priest isn't back reinstated. 
and Ezra's still in Babylon. And there is no life to Israel. Like they're going around in solemnness and sorrow and in busyness, and there's not the joy of the Lord in Israel. And Ezra is still in the Persian kingdom. And so um, I just think this man, Ezra, is a very remarkable man because he really had the key place in Israel. And yet here he was, not in Israel. He was in Babylon. He wasn't leading the worship in the temple. He wasn't in charge of the multitude, so many priests and Levites and temple servants and gatekeepers. Like he should have been in charge of it all. And instead, he's like this guy that's a scribe. It says that he was a scribe. This Ezra went up from Babylon. So he's coming to to Jerusalem. And he was a scribe. He was a lowly scribe. And sometimes I think that we think, you know, I missed the boat. You know, I, I could have been this or I could have been that, but I'm not. Or sometimes we think, you know, I'm, there's nothing significant about me. I've done nothing that's at all significant. And, um, you know, all these other people, they seem to be doing significant things, but not me. And Ezra never had that attitude, even though he could have. He could have said, I was supposed to be the high priest, but I'm not. So here I am, lowly me, doing nothing. And Ezra never thought that way. You know what he did? He spent his time being a scribe, but not just a scribe, being the best scribe that he could possibly be. And one of the things that I think in the, in the Christian church is we do not understand who this man Ezra is. Ezra is one of the greats. And Israel considered Ezra to be like Moses to them. We don't ever get that feeling, and we never really talk about Ezra. We talk about Moses, and we you know, pull him out and all the amazing things he did. But Ezra was like a Moses to them. Just like Moses brought them out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, so Ezra is the key figure in bringing them out of Babylon and in, back into Jerusalem. And so Ezra, to them, was like way up here. And in the Jewish literature, it says that had there not been a Moses, they are convinced Ezra would have been the one that God would give the law to. So Ezra is hugely important. And I just would encourage you all to read the entire book of Ezra and to understand his times better and to really um, look at his life and what he has done. So Ezra... um, was a scribe, and the scribes were, um, uh, they were Levites always, and they were the ones who wrote out the word of God. There's no printing press, so everything had to be handwritten. And uh, the scribes, they would write it out, and there'd be a senior scribe overlooking what they were doing, so that would be, Ezra would be the, the senior scribe. And he would be overlooking the copying of the scrolls. They also were um, the ones that were most versed in the law of God, because that's what they spent their time doing. And um, they would be also uh, counselors for the king because of their knowledge of the law. And so they, and there you know, a few other things about the scribes, which is quite interesting, but I don't have time to talk about scribes. Anyway, Ezra was an amazing scribe. And he took this 
ordinary job. I mean, it's not ordinary because it's dealing with the word of God, but it's, you know, there's lots of scribes. And he became the um, greatest scribe that Israel ever had. And yet, he was in a culture that didn't serve the Lord God. So um, he was skilled in the law of Moses, it says, and um, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him, I'm on verse 6, and the king granted him all he requested. So that's King Artaxerxes, so he's... Um, the one that came after King Xerxes, which was the king of Esther's day. So King Artaxerxes is the king of Persia, and he gives favor to Ezra, like this Jew. And um, anything that Ezra wanted, the king gave to him. Why? Because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him, was upon Ezra. Because Ezra, um, well, we're going to see in verse 10 because of what he was like, but God's good hand was on Ezra. And some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests and the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, temple servants, are all the people, those will all be people that are involved with the temple, went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. So basically Ezra is taking this huge group of people back to Jerusalem to serve in the temple. That's essentially what's happening. And they're not just a mishmash of people. They're going to be serving there. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. So it took them five months to cross that land. And uh, normally it's a four-month journey, but they had all their families and little ones and things like that. So it took them five months to get across from Babylon all the way, like they go north and then they come south because you can't just cross the desert. And it's a long journey. And then um, it says, um, again in verse 9, For on the first of the first month he began to go up from Babylon, and on the first of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, because the good hand of his God was upon him. And so we say, well, you know, I'd, I'd like the good hand of God to be upon me. I would like for the king to give me whatever I want. Oh, we don't have a king. Oh, well. So much for that one. Like, I would like to have God's good hand on me. Well, how is it that Ezra had God's good hand on him? And it tells us in the very next verse, it starts with four, meaning going back to that verse, God's good hand on him was because Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. And so um, he set his heart to study the word of God. Like he didn't just do a cursory reading. He didn't just do, you know, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year and, you know, I've done my half hour and I'm out of here. Like, and for us, that's a lot. For Ezra, he set himself down to really study God's word and to know it. And um, Ezra is the one that we feel is um, responsible for writing First and Second Chronicles, which are, you know, basically the history of uh, the house of Judah um, after the fact. Like he he went through the whole history again to remind the people when they went back to Jerusalem of their history and what they had come out of. And so uh, he did that as well as writing um, the book of Ezra. 
But he set his heart to study the law, and, it, and the word study in the Hebrew means to seek and to inquire. So it's not just this intellectual pursuit. It's, it is intellectual, but it's also spiritual. And so he's seeking what the Lord is saying, and he's desiring to be impacted by it. He, he's looking... Um, you know, inquiring. And I just think, it, and, you know, Janice gave us a good example in the prayer time of how you use the Word of God in prayer. That always, when we're in the Word, it's this constant dialogue with the Lord. We're hearing from Him and we're speaking to Him. And it's a, it's a, a time of prayer. It's not just sort of read and then afterwards you close in prayer. It's this constant interaction with the Spirit of God as we're reading the words that he has written for us. And so he studied the law of the Lord. Secondly, he practiced it. So I just want us to look at a couple of um, New Testament scriptures. 2 Timothy 2.15. Paul is telling this to Timothy, but also to all of us. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. How are we approved to God? As a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. It is possible to handle the word incorrectly. And we're called to be diligent to learn how to handle it accurately, which is, in my opinion, what inductive study is all about, is learning how to handle the word of God accurately. And so Paul warns Timothy to be like that. So he studied it. And then the practice, of course, I bet you can guess where I'm going, to James. So turn to James chapter 1, which is right after the book of Hebrews. And in James chapter 1, um, verses 22 to 25, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So... Um, He's saying, prove yourselves as doers of the word, not just hearers. If we're just hearers and we think, oh, yeah, I do that. Oh, yeah, I do that. Well, we're deluding ourselves. Like we need to put it into practice. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away. So, you, you know, the man's shaving himself in the morning and then um, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. He leaves the mirror and he goes, I can't remember what color hair I have. Yeah, I, I can't remember what shape my eyes are. Like, if I saw a picture of me, I wouldn't know what it was. That's what James is comparing it to. Somebody who reads the word and then is, doesn't do it is like that kind of a person. Like, really spaced out. So, I, he didn't use that term. That's a very modern term. Um, but... One who looks intently at the perfect law, that means the scriptures, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, effectual doer. This man shall be blessed in what he does. So, um, you know, James is, is telling us, put it into practice. And the third one, to teach it. You say, well, you know, I'm not really a teacher. Uh, we're all teachers. We teach by how we live, and we teach verbally as well as we explain why we live the way that we live. And we talk about the Lord. In 2 Timothy, again, chapter 2, verse 24, 
and 25. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach. This is every bondservant, which is a, a volunteer servant of God. Um, we need to be patient when wronged and with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So as we teach, as we live this life of um, holiness that we've been given, then we actually impact the unbelievers around us and the believers actually so we impact those who are around us okay so back to Ezra and uh, I just want to look at the impact of this man of God who studied the word who practiced the word who taught the word and he was so faithful to this like he was he was a very intense person I must say but um, an amazing servant of God and so as we look at um, verses 12 to 18, uh, this is the decree. So one of the things that a scribe does is write down the decrees that the king gives. And the king gives, um, by now it's Aramaic. The king is Aramaic, and all the people speak Aramaic. So Ezra mostly writes in Aramaic, certainly all these decrees. Hebrew now becomes, um, the people never go back to speaking Hebrew. It becomes the language of the scholars, much like Latin was in the Middle Ages. It's the language of the scholars. The scriptures are in Hebrew, but the people themselves, the everyday people, speak in Aramaic. And... Um, and uh, Ezra is versed in both. So this is the decree from Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. So Artaxerxes here is actually using the correct title for God that is known among all the nations. This is the title that God has. The God of Israel has this title, the God of heaven. Perfect peace. And now I have issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites in my kingdom who are willing, so this is voluntary, who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For as much as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors, so that's the, um, that's the king's council and is an official group, so they're all sending Ezra to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your hand and to bring the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel. This is amazing stuff. Um, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem with all the silver and gold which you shall find in the whole province of Babylon along with the free will offering of the people and of the priests who offered willingly for the house of their God, which is in Jerusalem. With this money, therefore, you shall diligently, look at this, buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their libations, that's the drink offering, and offer them on the altar to the house of your God, which is in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and to your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. And so, um, and he goes on, I'm going to stop there. But um, essentially, King Artaxerxes is saying, you are going with my blessing, and you are going with all this money 
So he gives them all this money in order to buy sacrifices. And so um, essentially, the king himself is sending sacrifices. Like you can't take all of them on this long journey, so they're going to have to buy them when they get there. And so he says, this is what I want you to do with the money. I want you to buy all these sacrifices. And there's you know, more money than what even here um, you have to buy. And he says, and I'm giving you authority with this decree. He's giving Ezra authority to do all of this. And so if anybody stops them, he's got this piece of paper that says, King Artaxerxes says I can do this. Now, if you know the history of, of the book of Ezra, you know that they've run into problems with this before, where the people of the land, not, not the Jews, but the other people who have moved in, give them a hard time and say, oh, they're a rebellious people, and they've sent word back to our Artaxerxes in the past and said, they are rebellious people, you need to stop it, which is why he stopped it for a while. And um, now here, he's giving favor to them again. Like, this truly is the hand of God who has acted in their behalf. And so um, he gives them, you know, this money and all those utensils. Remember when um, Nebuchadnezzar went into Babylon or from Babylon and went into Jerusalem and went into the temple before he destroyed the temple. He cleaned it out of all the gold and silver utensils and he brought it back to the, to the gods um, in his own temple, the god Nebo. And so he brought all that stuff back. And now this king is taking it all and saying, you know, you can take it back to Jerusalem, to the temple of God where it belongs. So these are all amazing things that are happening. And if you skip down to verses 27 to 28 of chapter 7, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers. This is Ezra speaking and his thanksgiving. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. Like Ezra totally knows this is God who did this to adorn the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So this man Ezra, even though the king has done all these amazing things, his thanksgiving goes to God who has put such a thing in the king's heart. What a wonderful acknowledgement of the providence of God. This is the providence of God, God's mighty hand that rules over all the earth. And in this act, Ezra sees, even though it's the king who did it, he doesn't go to the king and say, oh, king, you're the best. You know, God didn't do so much for us, but you, O king, you're coming through. He sees God in control of even what this king is deciding. And so um, he's ex God has extended his loving kindness to Ezra. And we're going to hear some more stuff about God's loving kindness. And just God's loving kindness is shocking. It is shocking how he loves us. We who continually, and we sang this morning, I don't know if you noticed, but two of the songs we sang talked about our wandering hearts. And we have got wandering hearts. I was looking at, um, a, a friend had given me some flowers for my birthday, which none of the rest of you did, but she did. <laughs> I'm teasing. <laughs> I was looking at these flowers that are cut, this vase, and they're starting to, you know, 
come apart because it's been a few days. Um, and I thought about the flowers and I thought it's because, you know, they're cut off from their root source. And when we are not drinking from the vine, the true vine, Jesus Christ, we may be able to keep up the show for a little while, even to ourselves. We can delude ourselves for a little while that we're fine, but it's not long until things start falling off. And it's not long until we're brown and withered and we haven't loved the Lord. And so, um, so that's what I was thinking about with these flowers. Not that nobody else got me flowers. <laughs> so um, we see that Ezra, um, he wasn't like that. He really understood who God was, and he was passionate about the Lord, and he spent time with the Lord, and the Lord um, had his good hand on Ezra because Ezra has a task before him. He's just been a scribe all this time, but now... He's going back. He wasn't sent back during the days of Zerubbabel, which actually was like 60 years ago. He's now going back um, to Jerusalem and um, under God's direction. So his praise to God and his journey, which is covered in the next chapters, like we read, you know, he went back in five months. Well, he didn't just go back in five months. One of the first things he did was he went to... Um, it's, it's a canal, the Ahava Canal, and it connects the Tigris and the Euphrates, and it's very close to where Babylon is. And that was sort of the first stop. And when they got to that first stop, to that canal, probably to get water, um, he stops. And he's looking at this people group that he's brought with him, and he realizes there are no Levites in this group. So all these people that are going back, there's no Levites. And um, the Levites are the ones who are supposed to be teaching them the law. Like there's Ezra, but there has to be more than just Ezra. And so he stops and he says, we need to get Levites. So he sends messengers to Ido. And Ido is uh, um, in the scriptures a number of different times. But it seems like it's a um, colony of Levites. And, and one of the things we learn from him doing that is that when Babylon, you know, took over and sent these people to all these different, like they were scattered. They didn't all come to Babylon, the city. They were scattered all over the place, and there's little colonies all over the place of Israelites. And so one of them is this colony of Levites, and Ido is the, um, the head guy. And he says um, to him, you know, we need some Levites. So... Um, Look at verse chapter eight, verse twenty-one, and he's and um, Ido sends him some Levites to serve there, and they, you know, again the word was put out, and it says twenty um, with his brothers and sisters, these twenty men, so the twenty Levites and two hundred and twenty of the temple servants, whom David and the princes had given for the service of the Levites, all of them designated by name. So they all came. Ezra was a very careful scribe. He wrote everything down. And there's probably more that he's written down that we don't have. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us. Because now they're going to begin that long five-month trek. Um, for our little ones in all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king 
troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way, because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. And so he's saying, you know, the king gave us all this stuff. And I was too ashamed to go and say, well, you know, we kind of need protection too. We can't just make this long, very dangerous journey without some sort of guards or some sort of swordsmen to protect us from all the marauders on the way. And there's lots of marauders on the way. And he says, I was too ashamed to ask for that because I told him, my God will protect us. And I wonder if that's our story. Are we so convinced of God's protection that we don't need to go to Egypt for protection? That's a, a term that's used in the scriptures for going to the world to get our protection. Or am I confident that God is with me and that nothing happens to me outside of his sovereignty? And sometimes there are some bad things that happen, but to have that confidence that starting place that I will worship the Lord my God no matter what. And that's what Ezra's trying to say. I have confidence in who God is. He's not saying everything will be perfect. He's saying my confidence is in God and I want that king to know that. And I wonder what is our testimony before the world when we're no different than the world? Do we really have our confidence in God or is it in our own ability or you know the safety net of some other person or the government system or whatever. So um, so in chapter 9, verse 1, they get there. And um, now when these things had been completed, so they get there, the exiles ha that had come from captivity, they offered the burnt offering, and of course Ezra would have been in charge of that. And now when these things have been completed, the princes, that means the princes of the land of Israel, so not Babylon anymore, we're now in Jerusalem, approached me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. So according to their abomination, so they're, by not separating, they're actually doing the idolatry of all these people of the land. Listen to this list and see if it doesn't sound familiar. Those are the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Haven't we heard those names before? Those were the people that were a snare when they first came out of Israel and went into the Promised Land. And here they are still there, and the people are still falling tr into their trap of idolatry. This is the very thing that they went into captivity over because they refused to leave idolatry and worship God alone. And here they are doing it again. And this report comes to Ezra, like he's thinking, you know, finally we've got revival and we're on the right track and all is good and God's good hand is on us. And then he gets there and he does the sacrifice and all the sacrifices that he was supposed to do on behalf of the king and then also for the people. It's done. And you would think after a worship service like that, everybody's like, we are on track with the Lord. And then he gets this report they have fallen back into that same idolatry. Do you not think that would be a very, very frightening and upsetting thing 
for Ezra to hear. And how do we respond when we hear of brothers and sisters in Christ who have fallen into idolatry? Generally speaking, we go shame, shame, shame and turn our back. But Ezra takes us upon himself. And look at what he does. He's an amazing guy. And I hope that we learn from him. Just before we go to verse 2, which I will, I just want to look at First Peter. And I think that's the next one. Yeah. So this is Ezra. And he's talking to all these people. And we're going to see what happens to all these people as he talks to them. But in First Peter, um, towards the end of your Bible... chapter 1, verse 14. Okay, so um, <clears throat> Peter, this is the behavior we're called to. Verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Like before you knew what God's ways were, you were like, you know, lusting or after all kinds of things. And he says, don't return to that. But like the Holy One, like God who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address the Father as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear. That means like in, with wisdom. Um, you know, we learn that in Proverbs. During the time of your stay upon earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life. Like you weren't bought with like money. You were, um, which you inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. This is what purchased us. It's not like money or something, you know, tawdry. It's not like anyone could have done this. You were bought with the precious blood of Christ. He died on the cross for you. He died on the cross for me. This is what we have been purchased with. And Peter is saying, therefore, because of this great value that you are to God himself, you are being called to live holy as he is holy because you were bought with such a precious, precious redemption price. And so, um, you know, Peter reminds us of that. And then in chapter 2, also of First Peter, verses 9 to 12, but you are a chosen race, like chosen by God, a royal priesthood. This is us, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you mo may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so he says to us I, that we have been called out of this. We were aliens and strangers. And he says, you know, abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul, and keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles or the unbelieving world. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation or the day of judgment. And so um, it's saying that our good behavior, our godly behavior, fleeing fleshly lusts, and you know, this is becoming, like you would think, you would think, 
we get this. But the church today is as immersed in the sex-saturated culture that the culture around us is. Like, we're only 20 years behind. That's been my observation. I've lived more than 20 years. And it seems to me in all these time periods, we're only 20 years behind the culture. We think we're so different, but we're not. We're just a little bit slower. And we adopt the culture. And Peter says, do not do that. You were bought with the precious blood of Christ. And to come and to live this holy life. And we need to help each other do that because it's not easy. And, and we're to be here to help one another and to um, live that godly life that he's calling us to. So back to Ezra. L- listen to what happens. Um, verse 9 or verse 2 of chapter 9. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons. Same thing as what they did before. So that the holy race, this is the race of Israel, this is the people of Israel that the Messiah must come out of. They need to keep themselves as a separate people because God has called them to be a separate people. And they've intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness, like the leaders. And when I heard about this matter... This is Ezra. I tore my garment my, and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard. So this is like great distress. A um, little better than Nehemiah. He tore the hair out of the, the men who were doing this, but Ezra tears his own hair out. And, um, and he sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, like they're watching Ezra do this, and they're trembling um, at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me. And I sat appalled until the evening offering. They had three offerings every day. But at the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, from, from my shame, even with my garment and my robe torn. And I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to thee, my God. For our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame as it is this day. But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place, like a tent peg in the temple, that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. Like this little window of Ezra being able to go back with these people. He says, we have this little window of grace that has been shown to us, and yet, we continue to do the sins of our fathers. And he's appalled at it. And I wonder, are we appalled at the sin that, for sure, we're appalled at the world's sin. But Ezra is saying, it's us. It's us that's the problem. And we need to be appalled at our own behavior, that we have not been what God has called us to be. And he says, for we are slaves, yet in our bondage, our God has not forsaken us. So even though we may not be straight as an arrow, 
God does not forsake us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments. And so he goes in to um, bringing these people back to true repentance and true sorrow and true obedience. And what he's teaching us is um, verse 1. This is the response of the people. Now, while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women and children gathered to him from Israel for the people wept bitterly. They knew that he was right and they felt it and they wept and they came to God and they confessed their sin and they did away with their idolatry and it's actually because of Ezra, because of how God used Ezra. Israel was on the precipice of going back to idolatry and Israel never went back to the kind of idolatry that they did beforehand. And they remained pure for the Lord. Now they had other issues, but they never went back to that idolatry. And it's because Ezra set his heart to study the word of God, to practice it himself, and to teach all of Israel to do likewise. I want to be like Ezra. How about you? We can be. We're just simple people. But Ezra was a simple man in a place where he just used whatever God gave him. And God gave him the role of a scribe. And he used it to such great effect that he influenced the nation of Israel for 400 years. Wow. Wow. So um, our God... He is uh, a God of promises. We talked about Abraham. We talked about the promises to Israel. We talked about um, the promises to Ezra. And he has given us promises. And he is a God of promises. He has promised that our lives are in his hand. And he cares for them. He cares for our lives. And he cares about us. And he's also a God of providence. He is in control. He is sovereign, even though we look at the world around us and we think, ah, there's no hope. And, you know, let's hope that people stop having children because our world is a mess. No, God is sovereign. He is in control. And he is affecting his purposes. And also, he is a God of presence, that he has called us to be his people holy because he is holy and he is present with us and he sees everything and he is amongst us and he enables us to live that holy life and so um so that is really what we're called to what is uh you know your story like we look at the story we call it the meta narrative the meta narrative means the overarching theme of all of scripture which is creation and then the fall and then redemption, and then restoration. That is throughout scripture. You see the big story, and you see it in every small story. We saw it in Ezra. You know that God created the nation of Israel. They fell into idolatry. They went into captivity. God restored them by bringing the remnant out, and, um, you know, the redemption. And so 
what is your meta-narrative? What is the story of God in your life? Now, that's going to take some thinking, but I would just challenge you to think about that, you know, over the course of the next hours of this Sabbath day. You know, think about what is the meta-narrative of my story? What is my creation? What is my backstory? How um, have I turned from God? How have I shown that I haven't actually been faithful? And how has God redeemed me? Jesus has redeemed me. And the restoration that he gives, what is he calling me to now, this life of holiness? What does it look like for me? And so um, so we conclude. And I just want to uh, pray. Um, I'm going to pray actually a scripture, which... Um, I think it's amazing. It's actually out of out of Micah, and it's Micah chapter seven, um, verses eighteen and nineteen. So let us pray. Who is a God like Thee, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of Your possession? You do not retain Your anger forever because you delight in unchanging love. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. We praise you and thank you, Lord. Amen. So I'm just going to ask you to stand while I read to you from Jude. Um, you know, we call it the, the great benediction, but it's really, uh, you know, now we're going out. The end of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Thank you. You'll find a warm, relaxed atmosphere at MCC. We love worship and music here. We are a Christ-centered church with all kinds of opportunities to reach out to the communities. It is our desire to direct people to the Lord Jesus Christ, the source of all life, hope, and true transformation. Our Sunday service starts at 10.30 a.m. and runs till noonish. We are a non-denominational evangelical congregation, so all are welcome. Coffee and snacks are served, children's church and child care are available. <laughs>